Hello, my name is Hannah Reeve. I'm the founder of Nature Nurtures, where we help social entrepreneurs, passionate teachers, and earliest practitioners to set up their outdoor nurseries, forest schools, and outdoor projects for children. Every now and then in life, someone special crosses your path and you sit up and you listen. Our summer intern this year at Nurture Outdoor Kindergarten put me onto Kirsten, the founder of Talking Tree Hill in New Zealand, and I'm so glad he did. Kirsten is that rare example of honest-to-goodness grit and determination that it takes to be a true changemaker in the early childhood sector. From childhood farming to creative, scientist, educator and changemaker, this is a fascinating story of one person's journey that begins with a simple question. What can I do right now to help children in the future? Listen up, folks. It's a good one. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us. So Kirsten, let's start with basically what led you, it's a big question, what led you to setting up Talking Tree Hill? Okay, well, it's quite simple, actually. I have been teaching for 20 plus years and I have taught in lots of different schools and places around the world. And when I came back to New Zealand, I decided that actually from all the learnings that I've had from different pedagogies and different places, that I wanted to put them together and I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I did. And I started out just doing a music school over here called ZB's Creative. And then I was like, I want to do something more. And I've got the farming background. So I've always been really connected to nature and to the whenua. And I've always been sort of fascinated with te ao Māori, which is the indigenous culture from New Zealand. And I'm a creative at heart and a scientist. So I kind of, when I came back to New Zealand, I was like, what do the tamariki need? What are the kaiako? And that just means children and the teachers. What do we actually need from our education system? And when you've been in the education system for a long time as a teacher, you kind of work out, well, this is what a child needs and this is what a teacher needs. And so all of those kind of things I was thinking about and then I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to do this. So I decided not to go back to mainstream education. And then I created Talking Tree Hill. And the reason for doing that is when I came back to New Zealand, the mind and body health of the children worried me. We have pretty high mental health rates over here and it's leading to choices with children that aren't the best. So I wanted to see, okay, do you know what? What can you do to help? And that's where Talking Tree Hill came from, is this kind of looking for this need and this niche of what can I do now to help children in the future? Mm, mm. So, Kirsten, you're a natural change maker, aren't you? So you you, <laughs> you saw this problem here and, and used all of that wonderful experience and passion to create something new and hopefully supporting solving of these problems as well towards that. Mm. Can you just take us back then? Because... I can hear that you've got a lot of experience here. So let's go right back to the beginning then. You said you've got a farm background there. So you're a farm yep. girl at heart? I am a farm girl at heart. So I was brought up in the South Island of New Zealand in a little oh, place called Waimiri. Beautiful. And my parents have been farming there for over 110 years. So that's been in our family and it's kind of a generational farm I guess neither myself and my brother are farming it right now we're doing different things but what it did was really give me that sense of love for the whenua love for the land 
And then from there, I did the, you know, the standards primary school. I went to intermediate and then I went to a boarding school. And then I went to teacher's college. And so I went back and I did the university as well. And I kind of done quite a few degrees and things along the way. And it's because I just have this real thirst for education. And then I went traveling. So I did, well, I did my teacher registration here and I started managing early childhood centers because at that stage I was just a early childhood teacher. And then I started running my own holiday programs. And then I went to the UK. And so I spent eight years in London. And then I spent another five years around Italy and Singapore and Taiwan. So I've taught in lots of different places. And then I've learned lots of different pedagogies. And I've learned kind of different place-based educational ideas and thoughts and really kind of tapped into the people in those places for inspiration. And all along the way, Hannah, I've always kind of been followed by this nature education. And I remember doing it in inner city London and Hackney. And there was this kind of (laughs) tiny, small green space in this real concrete jungle. And kids weren't allowed in there. And it was just this own, you know, this beautiful little space. So the school allowed me to do that. And along that nature education has always been my absolute love of creativity and really developing that authentic voice for children. And it's not about developing it. They already have it. So it's more about how we get out of the way as a Mm. teacher and as a guide, you Mm. know, like you've heard my formal side of education. And then alongside of that was me also gathering that thoughts about actually what makes a really good learner. If we actually allow children to be curious and be their natural inquirers, they can do most of this stuff themselves. Yeah. So my kind of academic journey led me into this real sort of sense of something else is there apart from that I totally respect that at the same time but it's kind of led me to forming Talking Tree Hill and when you are a lover of education and nature and creativity you get to kind of be in this wonderful opportunity of giving back because those things are what children want and love and so do teachers Mm. so yeah that's kind of where I came from along in that journey and where I am now. Gosh Absolutely amazing. Can I ask some questions about this international travel element? Because that's very exciting. (laughs) That's such a unique... Not so much now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a very unique opportunity, though, like you've said about that place-based and cultural learning that you, as a practitioner, have been able to observe and, I guess, immerse yourself in in, in particular places. So you spent eight years in London, and that's in a city teaching... Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Five years of that was in one primary school, and that's kind of where I developed. I was a science coordinator. I was head of music, and then I became the deputy head of that school. Right. And because it was in a city, you got offered a lot of programs and experiences that you might not get in other places. So, Mm. you know, that's when I, I mean, I wrote operas with the Royal Opera House and I worked with the London Symphony Orchestra and the Hackney Music Council type area to become a music teacher. You know, you got a lot of experiences because people tried to put money into these situations to help. Mm. So that experience was absolutely incredible and absolutely fundamental for its kind of want of better words, like putting me on my ass and going, Mm. this is really, really hard because there's a crack house just down the road, the biggest one in London. And so we had these children that came from really deprived areas and so multicultural. 
just, I remember counting 48 languages in my nursery class at one stage. And so you become this teacher, but you become a counsellor at the same time. Mm. And you learn, I just learned so much from that experience. And five years of being in that place, it toughens you up as a person and also teaches you huge amounts of empathy. And that's what you need to be, to be a really good teacher as well. You know, you need to have that empathetic voice, but also have those boundaries at the same time to be able to hold yourself up because your own well-being and that of the children and all the teachers around you are so paramount and it's so hard in these concrete jungles to be able to do that because you need nature, you know, like you need that green time, you need that air, you need the vitamin D just to soak up all the goodness and that can be really hard to do in some of these really dense urban schools. Mm. Mm. A massive learning curve, no doubt, full of a journey into emotional resilience, no doubt. Oh, yes, so big, so big, Mm. (laughs) particularly of my own. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Now, what about Italy? What did you do there? So in between these times as well, I took a year off. I took 14 months off, actually, and I travelled. And so I I totaled 14 months off. I was kind of early 20s and, and I could do it. And I went into India and Nepal and spent six months in there. And then I went into... We went up into, oh, we went, actually we started in Sri Lanka first and spent six weeks there. And we kind of went all, all these places, went back to New Zealand for a bit and then went into Mexico, went into South America and then sort of landed in Italy and stayed there for a bit. And so I was teaching, teaching English in a school over there. Right. And that was really awesome. So I did that for a few months and then I went back to the UK after that and back to schooling. But Italy was, you know, just I never actually got to Reggio Emilia, which I would have loved to have done mm. because that as an area with that, the teacher being in the outdoors or you know, nature as the first teacher was always something that's pretty prominent in my heart. Mm. And I loved teaching that. So from Italy, I guess I was inspired when I was in Taiwan and Singapore. I actually taught in Reggio Emilia schools like international schools little nursery schools and things yeah so I just you know I think that as a system is a a beautiful one as well you Mm. know I'm kind of I guess my thing Hannah with places like that is I learned a little thread about education you know like so I'm in something from there and then from somewhere else and then I kind of it allowed me to put them together and then kind of come up with my own way of teaching and learning and it's no big deal it's just like simple stuff but instead of being part of just one pedagogy or one idea it was like taking little threads from everywhere and putting it together so that the experiences I can provide for children and teachers around me are that are a mixture of ideas and then I believe really helps for that individualized learning because every single child is different every single child And we need to be able to teach them in a transdisciplinary way. So it means that sort of, you know, there's bigger talk here, isn't it? But that kind of like metacognitive rather than subjectified. And for me, that happens when you don't have to be a stickler for just one way, Mm -hmm. you know, that you feel that you can bring in lots of different concepts because so many things from so many people before us have got great ideas, mm-hmm. but they don't need to stand alone. It doesn't just have to be Steinic education. It just doesn't have to be Montessori. It just doesn't have to be this or that. You can take little bits and put it all together and create a really beautiful environment for learning. 
So, yeah, so I guess that place-based, as you were saying, has allowed me to kind of mix it up and get somewhere differently with my teaching because of those experiences, yeah. And which experience would you say has been the most powerful for you, that most inspiring in terms of what Talking Tree Hill has become and is becoming? There would be two places. The first one would be my childhood. Mm -hmm. So naturally being linked to the land on a farm where you're naturally absorbing what that goodness is, that would definitely be my first one. And that brings me into that heart space of why I teach in the outdoors and why I think nature is so important. And then the second one would be that inner city London school because it taught me so much empathy and it taught me so much more about what I wanted to create in terms of well-being for children. You know, like what is it that I do for their well-being and their holistic education and that being so, so important and that if you don't have that, if you can't look after the kids at the same time, how do they learn properly? If they haven't had enough food, if they haven't had enough water, if their basic needs aren't met, how do they learn? And it's really, really difficult to teach a child who is absolutely starving, mm. like really hungry. They're sitting there, it might not have had a glass of water or, you know, so I, I learned so much from there and, and I just learned so much from growing up in an outdoor space. You know, mm. you almost take it for granted. Well, I did take it for granted. And it wasn't until later on, like now, that I realised that that had such a big impact mm. because I got to just be. Mum and Dad used to always laugh and talk about how I would go and sit up in the chicken coop with the chickens or I'd love being in with the pigs or, you know, all those kind of things. And all those learning experiences that sit outside sort of mainstream education really helped kind of funnel the educator that I am without me really knowing it. And it's that natural incidental learning that takes place when you have more space just to be a kid. And I had space to be a kid. Like the time was there. I had a childhood that I was really lucky, you know. And so, yeah, those two things for me would be what's really shaped where Talking Tree is now and where it's going. When did the seed start in terms of I need to do this. I need to set up this place in my community. When and where did this happen? Yeah. So it happened. It's kind of been this rolling thing. Mm. It started with me designing different early childhood centers. One, <laughs> one I really loved was the shape of a butterfly and all these rooms went off it for art and music and creativity and outdoors and all of these kind of things. So the seed's always been there. I've always had this sense that I was going to do something else because I wanted to do something else. But when I came to Waiheke and we moved here from Singapore, I kind of got back to the roots a little bit more in terms of going, look, I don't want to live in another big city because, as you've heard, lived in lots of big cities for sort of, yeah, you know, yeah. 14, 15 years. Mm, mm. And I then went, well, I don't really want to do that. But my partner at the time, his job was having to be in Wellington or in Auckland. And I hadn't been to Waiheke before, so we came to a friend's wedding, which is very Waiheke, by the way. I think we have 10% of the world's <laughs> weddings or something. In the, I don't know, some crazy statistic. Anyway, so I came to Waiheke and I just loved it. And it's like this island chooses you. It's very beautiful. 
people here are creative, they're professionals, there's, you know, we have this huge divide between kind of rich and poor and, you know, it has all of this creative beauty around it. And I knew at that point that I wanted to create something and that's hence when my music school sort of started. It was just a little, you know, a couple of days. And then something just went what are you going to do next? Okay, so this that's all very well doing a bit of music, but, you know, I was like, mm, I'm a little bit, I might be a little bit over this one now. What do I want to do next? It's not enough. I need more. I need more. <laughs> yeah. So I do events as well, and I started doing some something called Y Talks and speaking on, getting people to speak for eight minutes, half a TED Talk about their experience of a certain topic. And the topics that I did first was like land and laughter and that by the end of this, we did so many of them and it spelt out the word live. So, you know, like one whole bunch of the events was, you know, it was four different events in different places around Waiheke. And then the next year we did another four all around Waiheke and with different topics. And then I was just, just like, mm, yeah, okay. And that spurred me on to create Talking Tree Hill. I was like, okay, I'm looking for education. I'm looking for people talking and around different things. Actually, I want to get children to talk around different things and be in their own space. So it was when I came to Waiheke, really, that I then knew this is what I was going to do. But it still took a year or no, maybe two years to really get it and then go, okay, let's let's sell up and let's buy some land and let's do this. And so then I think it was about 2017 is when we brought Talking Tree Hill and so many people said to us, oh, no, don't do it. It had been, <laughs> this property had been <laughs> on the market for five years and hadn't sold and it was a little bit of a tough piece of land. Still had a like a beautiful feel to it but it's quite steep and it had sort of fallen through with the the people before they'd started a little cafe on it so the cafe was here but it hadn't been touched for a long time you know like the kaikuia which is grass over here was really long and so we needed to do a bit of work around that and so then we we did it we did it and and it's great because here I, I chose it I loved the land because it's got a farm school, it's got a forest school, and it's got a bush school. So I could see the opportunity. Whereas other people were like, what are you going to do? This place is, you know, (laughs) how are you going to use this land? And I was like, I know how I'm going to use this land, but I couldn't kind of get it out there. Mm. This is really that real big push throughout the globe, which there is now for for nature education. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you guys over there have been pioneering forest schools and things for a while. Mm -hmm. And we do bush schools over here. So I kind of jumped on that a few years back and it's kind of just got momentum from there really and that's how we started Talking Tree Hill so yeah it's kind of always been there but it definitely got momentum because I came to Waiheke and just went wow let's get more children outside and let's get them in these different spaces that we have here. So let's talk about the space a little bit because I've seen photos of the space on your website and it it looks stunning and I can see the work that you've done and, and that you're doing as well. How big is it? So it's 18 acres, so, so seven hectares. Sizable, okay. Yeah, yeah. And some of that's coveted, though. You can't, you know, like it's the bush, so it's the native bush. 
yeah. out the back and we have a forest over there as well. So it gets to be left, which is really nice for us as well, you know, not to overdevelop it or put another house in there or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That exactly is protected. That's great. So it's yeah. interesting as well that before that it had a beginnings of a commercial use because you had the cafe. Somebody had seen that, put some potential there for a commercial site, but that have failed. Is that right? Yeah, I think what happened was that they broke up and then the actual cafe itself only went for six months. And at the time, Auckland Council were going to put in like a loop road around where we are because we're kind of further out in Waiheke Mm -hmm. and it was going to be sort of built up a little bit more and they never actually did that. So I think that the idea kind of left after that same stage of it not being developed by the council. Yeah, And then can you just give us a picture of, so Waiheke is, is an island, isn't it? It is an island. How do you get there? What does this look like? Cool. Well, we say that Waiheke looks like a two-headed tanifa. So a tanifa is like a kind of, how would I explain it, like a little mythical dragon. (laughs) It's not really really a dragon. It lives in the rivers over here. But just to kind of cross that over into what you guys you know, might understand a little bit more of, it's a mythical creature, I guess. A tanifa is a mythical creature. So it's got one head that, that way and that, that way, and that's what the island looks like. And we are in the Hauraki Gulf, and we're about a 35-minute passenger ferry ride away from Auckland. And then if you're going to take a car over, it's about an hour. So Auckland's here, and then we're over here. And do people live on the island? Are people allowed to live on the island or is this, Mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's a really commercial little island. We grow a lot of grapes here for wine and so it's very delicious. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And we have like beautiful eateries and obviously surrounded by lots of beaches. So I think the population is around Mm 9,000. So it's quite big. And then in the summer, because tourism is one of our main industries as well as growing, growing wine, making wine, I should say, is tourism. So that it goes to about 30,000 people wow. over, this, yeah. over the summer. There's a lot of holiday houses here, like lots of holiday houses. Yeah. I've been to Auckland and I've been to Waiheke and an absolutely stunning place and some good places to go to taste some wine. <laughs> yes, there is. Yes, there is. And eat some delicious food. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you found a stunningly beautiful place. in a stunningly beautiful setting with potential that no one else could envisage or imagine. So how how did you take the people with you who you needed to make this happen? How did you convince them? Yeah, Yeah. so that was a real journey within itself because what we wanted to do and what I wanted to make sure of is that we didn't actually just sit as this kind of bespoke alternative school on the island that you had to pay a lot of money to go to and it was unaffordable. Mm -hmm. So we started out with a group of eight homeschoolers. So we started out with homeschooling first and we had groups come out here and then I just worked with schools and so I talked a lot to the principals and the board of trustees and we have an Education Act in New Zealand under Section 73 which allows children to come out for one day a week to different programs. So I spent probably about two years working with the primary schools to get the idea that this could happen for them. So it's like children can go out to gifted and talented programs. It's a day where children and parents get to choose. Maybe there's something that they can't get 
in the classroom mm-hmm. at a school. And it's not like the school's doing anything wrong. It's just that child needs something else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for us, that's really simple. As a child that can't learn as well in the four walls of a classroom, but gets outside here and then just absolutely thrives. And we get a, a lot of children who, you know, may have ADHD or things like that, and they come out and, and we help them with that. Or we have children who are hugely creative. It's a real mix of children who come out here, mm-hmm. and then we mix them all up. So there might be homeschoolers, there might be unschoolers, there might be mainstream children, there might be children from a Steiner school, and we kind of mix them all up. So to bring people with us was to allow anyone to be here. So my big things have always been about accessibility and being equitable. And that's really hard with the model that we've created here because it's a pay-as-you-go. We're not funded from the government. We do now get some funding from the Ministry of Social Development because we're Oscar-accredited, and that just simply means that parents can apply to us under the scheme through them to get money off according to their economic status. So for me, it's always when you want to get something like this rolling, it's about relationship and it's about connection. And if you don't have those two things, you are not going to fly. People need to understand what you're doing. So that took a wee while, mm-hmm. you know, like work out, what are you doing, Kirsten? Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm trying to do this. I want more children to be outside and I want them to be learning without eight different strands of education. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it was really working with the schools and getting people just to take a chance to get out here. So it, it takes a while, you know, like yeah, it it, it's not easy. And, and particularly with COVID happening, people don't have as much money and things like this are possibly the first things to go. It depends. It depends on what children need and what parents' beliefs are as well and their values. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there was a, just a lot of work just talking and getting people to understand the concept, like, what is it that you're doing? And now I think it's easier. I think there's a lot of momentum around the world with what's going on in the, that nature ed area. So you can see, oh, yeah, forest schools, oh, you're one of that. Yes, yes, we're those things. But our focus is really, really about well-being because we're sure we do the, the nature education, but we're really focused on a te ao Māori culture here in New Zealand as well and using te reo. And also we focus on art and music and yoga and plant education and story. All of the things we think will round out a really lovely little human. So it was just trying to get that messaging and communicating that. And when people get it, they get it. And then they're on board and we have some really, really loyal, loyal customers. And if you don't get it, it just takes time to be able to understand it understand the importance of children needing to be outside. And I think anything from COVID, we've been taught that, haven't we? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm interested in you saying that, so this accessibility aspect of it and making that so it's for everyone. So like you said about, you know, Steiner, Montessori, whatever, unschooling, homeschooling, whatever your choice in terms of learning style is or approach how do you do that? Because you make that sound so very simple, but it's not. It's a very complex thing with many, many layers. And exactly at the centre of that is you forming a relationship with that family so that they can entrust their child Mm. with you. And are you able to fulfil particular learning aspects that they might have in their minds? So how do you go about doing that? Well, the first thing to always remember 
is that nature is the differentiator. So that's the common, secure, stable element that everyone knows that when your child comes here, that that is the, the one that supports them, you know. So that's the differentiator. That's the one that can bring everyone together and is the main teacher. So it's also about knowing your stuff. Yep. So you need to know. You need to have, for me, I've, I've always researched and I'm an educator and I know this stuff and I naturally teach like that. So it's part of how I do things. From what I understand now, like I didn't realize that until people said, oh, how are you doing that? And I'm like, I don't know. It just seems to be part of what you do. When you've done the mahi, when you've done the work for 20 odd years, you naturally have picked up some stuff, <laughs> you know. And again, it's that same thing about relationship and connection. And I don't get it right all the time. Absolutely not. But you have to be able to develop trust with people. And if they trust you and they can see that you're genuine, they can see that you're authentic and that you're doing this work, for me anyway, that I'm doing this from a place of caring and for a place of well-being, then they'll buy into it. But they won't buy into it if they don't believe in you and that the children don't go home and say, you know, I loved it or this or that or they haven't had a good experience. But at the same time, children at times come away from here and go, oh, you know, that was so tough or whatever because it's challenging. We get them to take risks and we get them to make different decisions and look at things in a different way and challenge their behaviours about a certain situation. So sometimes it's, it's you know, it's not all butterflies and bows that it's very much about taking those next steps and challenging what they think and it challenges us with what we think then at the same time as well so yes I think to be able to do all of those things you have to feel strong in yourself as an educator you have to feel strong in your values and your beliefs and you have to walk the talk you know mm -hmm. you can't be doing something like this if you're not actually doing it you can't you have to work hard, you know, I I'm, I'm have to look after 18 acres of land at the same time. So people need to understand that you're dedicated to it and all of those th just things mixed together to be able to teach in that way. And, yeah, it's it's not easy. You know, it's, it's homeschooling, it's unschooling, it's all of those things together. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And what it is, if it doesn't work, is just another conversation. So that's mm -hmm. all it takes every single time is if you can communicate and talk to people and talk about concerns and then allow things to let it go and take on board and to really listen. You know, listening is a massive skill that people need to do more of. Listen to what's going on and understand it and try and work it out. And if you can't work it out, then just let it go because not everything you can work out either. So, yeah, it's a huge amount of sort of juggling, to be honest, and juggling personalities and reading it and intrinsically reading it and feeling it, you know, like, yeah, there's a lot of intuition that I work on and get the children to work on as well. And then, yeah, but that's kind of how we do it. Yeah, <laughs> and try and teach other people how to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's enormous and it's a skill and it's a skill that takes Oh, so long. Well, it takes years and, you know, no doubt you're still developing it as well. It, you know, it's one oh, of those absolutely. that keeps going and going for the whole of your life. Oh, it's not, yeah. And not everyone can do that. But holding space for people is a huge responsibility. That's right. And I think the thing as well is that when you're bringing people together in that way, 
and you're respecting their time and and holding that space in a safe manner, making that a safe space, you're showing that you care for those people. You have Mm. to have some kind of care Mm. to enable that trusting relationship to form. Oh, it's a huge amount of humanity to manage that humanness that we all carry with us and and all the things that people bring with them. Yeah. Mm. My goodness me. And that's what we need, Hannah. You know, like this is the stuff that we need now. This is what the world is showing us at the moment. Look at this kindness. Look at your empathy. Look at humility and just think differently and kind of be that change. And I guess that's where Talking Tree Hill is positioning itself. But, you know, to do that, I think when you said to me about something that sparked my curiosity then was when you said to me about being equal and accessible. And I realised very early on that we couldn't be. We could be to a certain amount of people. And so I then, the next stage, kind of the future, I guess, is what I'm going into with Talking Tree Hip now to just tell you about a little bit, is that that's something I've held within me always. It's like, you know, how do we do more of this? How do we grow this? How do we make this more impactful? And only for the reason of helping out with kids' minds and bodies and then of the teachers at the same time. So last year we started a research project called Green Play Day and we piloted it in three local schools here and we're still doing it as well. We've just gone with the flow of how how that's worked over the last 18 months and it hasn't been easy but Mm -hmm. we've just persevered and what we did was we brought in this whole kind of outdoor day based on our eight different strands of education and each term the teachers involved and there's been 12 of them have had professional development in the certain areas like art or music or te Māori. And every week they spend a day outside in the younger years. And, you know, so that means for us maybe up to year two, three, mm-hmm. sometimes four, and then year five, six, we've done kind of like a couple of hours or a, or a half day. And then to mediates we've done sort of a half day or a couple of hours as well. And the reason why I was doing this research is that I wanted to put what the ideas and values and beliefs and learning that happens out here, let's get that into mainstream. Let's help embedding that and implementing it in the national curriculum. So that's what we've been kind of trialing out and playing with. And then when COVID happened last year, my business mentor said to me, I think you need to move forward with the idea that you've had of putting these online activities that you were going to do after the research project had kind of finished, I think you need to start doing that now. And so it led to the second business that I'm doing and (laughs) launching in this crazy, crazy time, which is called Nature to Classroom. And this is where it hits that equity and accessibility, those key terms, because what we've created is three and a half minute video episodes that accompanied by activity sheets in the form of a PDF and then teaching tips from me, you know, like on a screen like this. And then at the start of each term, it goes to a school and they can have the videos and the PDFs and the teaching tips. And it gives them kind of like challenges to get children outside and getting them more creative and taking the learning from the indoor classroom to the outdoor classroom. And that, for me, is the future of where all of the story that I've been telling you about is going to, is then going, hey, we've had this research engine that is Talking Tree Hill. We've trialled these things out. We've done these activities. We've taken them outside. How can we now distribute that so that more children have access to it? So we have. 
<laughs> so that's what I'm doing now is that, you know, while we're in this lockdown as well, is it's going through and working out how we can launch this. And we're launching in first term of next year. And we're wanting to get 20 schools involved just to start it off. And then our big aim, we're just going going all out really. <laughs> our big aim is to do it in Aotearoa in New Zealand first. And then we would like to put it out for the rest of the world. So, oh, wow. yeah, because I know you'd sort of said to me, where is the future of this going? And, and this mm. is where it's going. We want to keep this beautiful research engine room, which is Talking Tree Hill, as I said before, where we do our one-day schools and our holiday programs and our after-school clubs and all those sorts of things. But actually the vision for me is to be able to use a screen really well, like use a screen as a tool. We don't have screens or anything out here. But it's naive to think that it can't be a beautiful tool if used appropriately. So like our activities and stuff, it could give you an hour to two to three hours of outdoor time. And what a perfect use of three and a half minutes, you know. Okay, watch this. Take the PDF. Let's go outside and let's get more green time and less screen time. I mean, it's it's fantastic. And it's a great distribution model, you know. It's like, well, let's get this out here. So that's kind of the future of where we're going at the moment and it means that while we are in these lockdown situations we can focus on that and develop it and hopefully grow and get it out there so and come and visit you yeah very exciting (laughs) very exciting yeah let's talk a little bit then about so you're in lockdown at the moment and making full use of that time (laughs) by the sounds of it uh, quite rightly so how has covid impacted talking tree hill Hugely, hugely. When COVID happens, we shut down and we rely on subsidies from the government, which we're really grateful for. But I already know that the subsidy that I've had will be gone from today. And so, yeah, we're closed and not earning. So it's really about, I keep hearing from the business world, pivoting and being agile. (laughs) And so I am pivoting and I am being agile. And I have this, I don't know, this maybe it's a little bit crazy at the same time, but I, I truly, truly believe in what we're doing. So even though, yes, it's a bit scarce, over COVID at this point, it's, it is hitting us and it's, it only hits us now, but afterwards, because any one who has bought into our programs because we have a, you know, they buy at the start of the term and they Mm -hmm. buy for the term. We'll credit that when we go out of lockdown. So therefore the revenue there isn't there either. We'll get some more extras for after school programs and hopefully for a holiday program. But, you know, we're crediting from this term into the next one. So also there's a a downage of, downage isn't the right word, but, you know, there's a, a lack of funding and revenue that comes through then. But so what? <laughs> That's what happens in small businesses and you have to be creative and you have to flow with it. And that's what I'm going to do and just work a little bit harder to keep your dream going. And yes, it is tricky, but I will work it out. And I'm really lucky because I still work one day at one of the schools. So there is some money coming in from there for one day a week, which is honestly, it's, everything helps. Absolutely everything helps. But I just think I want to use this opportunity to see what else I can do. And yeah. it's that you either step up or you fall over. And at this stage, it might be in a few months that I'm falling over, but at this stage, I just want to keep stepping up and doing what I think is right. And that is looking after the mind and body health of the children and of our planet. Because all of the stuff that we do here 
and as a zero waste facility is to give back to Papa Tuanuku and give mm-hmm. back to Mother Earth because we know that we want our children to be the kaitiaki leaders, which means guardians of the planet. And so we need to teach them now how to do that. And so for me, I'm just going to get on and do that (laughs) the best way that I can through a screen, through whatever way that is, by having a yarn to you. You've just got to keep going and not worry. Like if I sat and worry and if I sat in fear, I wouldn't get up. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And I don't want to do that. No, no. You say that this is what small businesses go through, but it is unprecedented because you're being forced to shut down your revenue, you know, every... Is it for six weeks that you have a lockdown, a full lockdown or...? Well, I think what Auckland is going to have is four weeks of level four, which is like a total lockdown. And then the... I mean, it's really hard to know at the moment with the Mm. Delta strand how it's going to Mm. work. And then they're kind of saying two to three weeks in level three, which means we're still shut down. Right. And then we'll go from there. So each week there's a different announcement of how we're trying to eliminate COVID right. here. So we just have to go have to go with the flow, Hannah, you know? Like yeah, y- just yeah. take it you as it got comes. A choice. And yeah. No, no. And when you don't have a choice like that, you just make other choices, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm here and I've got my two boys here and, and they're fabulous and the three of us are we're doing what we can. Do you live on the site? Do you live at Tree Hill? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're there managing yeah. your 18 acres and spending Correct. time with your boys and and doing this. Lapping up that time together. Yeah. And a lot of Zoom calls. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of Zoom calls. <laughs> Crazy amount, man. Oh, so good though. So good. But you've got the release and the relief of getting out onto Talking Tree Hill. So that's it's you're true. very privileged. You're very privileged. I am. Absolutely. I absolutely am. In usual times, can you just take me through the sort of what I call the enterprises or the services that Talking Tree Hill offer? Because you've mentioned holiday clubs, after school yep. clubs. Yep, yep, sure. What else? So we do the one-day schools, we do after-school clubs, and we run them here and at one of the local primary schools. And we do holiday programs, and then we do professional development for teachers, and we do wellness days, and we're about to launch corporate days at the same time. So that's kind of all the things that we cover. Okay. So you're working with a huge variety of people, and from children through to adults as well, making full use of your site. The one-day school is really interesting, and I I knew that about New Zealand. Is it Section 67, did you say, or 63? I can't remember. 73. 73. 71 and 73, something like that, yeah. Or 71, maybe. There's a huge drive here in England, English education, for that to happen here, and that's received a lot of interest following the global pandemic because a lot of some parents are very fearful about sending children to school and some aren't you know Mm, it's a real mm, melting pot mm. but for sure that has because there's a quite a significant online petition at the moment that they're trying to get into parliament to be at least discussed so that children can have this one day release and spend time in whatever setting whether Mm. that's a home or, or whatever and we at Notre Dame or kindergarten we actually do a program for that. We call it a flexi school program. And that was born out of a research project that we did as part of our social enterprise, where we created partnerships with local schools, which was hard going because a lot of head teachers are fearful about change. And what's this this unusual request that you're bringing to my desk? (laughs) So we had Mm, mm. a variety of responses, but it's been a very rewarding journey. And we're very pleased that we've done it and that we're continuing with it. 
And we've established some really good relationships with local schools. Not all of them, but you know, a few there. So when you say that you've been busy building relationships with schools, and in those early yeah. days when you did that, which is a very clever thing to do because it places you next to those schools in terms of professionalism and mm-hmm. the education status, which is yeah. quite rightly so. So I just wanted to highlight that for you as mm. something, again, that takes a lot of skill and time mm. and mm. I'm sure hard work. That didn't come easy, I guess. No, as I say, it took two years of chatting and trying to get the concept out there and sometimes me not exactly being able to tell yeah. them my concept because, I mean, I'm developing this stuff all along the way. There's a lot of research and development. So it was, it was just about keeping going in and talking to the principals and then presenting to the board of trustees and getting the buy-in. And I was just so lucky that they got it, but it took time. I mean, I just, it, I mean, that's two years what I'm talking about yeah, before we yeah. did that. Yeah. And they came out and I just got them to trial for a start as well. Like, well, just come down and have a look. And sometimes if you can get people just to trial, just come for a wee trial, and then they get the feedback from the kids, and the kids are like, this is so awesome, I want to be there all the time, or this is great, I can't, you know, like all of those things. Then you'll get your buy-in as well because all teachers and parents just want to see their children happy, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you give them that experience, and for some children it's like, oh, my goodness, you know. And so we would do lots of wonderful activities with them. We'd go on the walks, and they'd just be like, and there's the animals here, and we'd do a fire or depending on what season we're in and all those kind of things. Then you get it. But, yeah, it is not easy. What you guys are doing is not easy, and it just takes time, and it takes a lot of mutual respect, and you have to – build your relationship and your reputation as well. Yeah. And, you know, I taught in those schools as well. So I would then go on and teach and do supply teaching and. Very clever. That's a good move. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to model, you know, and and have a bit of personality about things as well. Your personality can take you a really long way or not, (laughs) (laughs) depending if you relate to someone, you know, and I'm like, oh, I don't know what, she's a bit nuts, you know. (laughs) Just a little bit. It's part of the charm. It's part of the allure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but that just takes time. Takes time. So speaking of the allure, how did you tempt people to come and help you to set this place up? Because I know this was your idea and you went ahead and you did it. You Mm -hmm. bought this land, presumably with your partner. Yeah. Yeah. So you had family. Yeah, not partner anymore, though. (laughs) Ah, okay. (laughs) My partner's now talking Tree Hill. (laughs) Right. So now you've got this solely yours. So who helps you? Who works with you? And what kind of relationship is that? Yeah, yeah. So I have different teachers doing different things. So we have a drama specialist, a music specialist. We've had yoga teachers here. We have different people kind of as different independent contracts to help with our ethos, basically. When mm. we were working the land, we had a lot of woofers. So we had a lot of people who lived out here with us in kind of like um, bell tents and stuff. And then we paid people. And then we just got, and we had like working bees as well, where people come out and, and give us a bit of a hand. We got tracks put on. Yeah, there was, there was a whole, whole year of development. And don't forget that it took a year to get a resource consent to do this as well. So mm. that was a huge hard slog at the same time. Like none of it's come easy, but 
all of it's been super fun at the same time. So, you know, like it's just you have to create people around you that will be your support network but also do the work at the same time. And the teachers that I have, I was speaking to one of them this week, was like they do it because they believe in it and that comes with experiencing it, hanging out with me or hanging out with the animals or hanging out with the land and then that's how you do it. And if it doesn't connect with them, then there's no point being here. And everyone's really honest about that. Like if it works, it works, and it doesn't, it doesn't. And mostly it works. So, yeah, yeah, that's how we do it. I'm very interested in the volunteer aspect because obviously you need that. That's a huge amount of land that you're having to care for. And then you have the animals aspect. And then obviously you have your expertise in terms of the teachers and the different areas that they work in. So how does it work having volunteers on the site? Well, we haven't been able to for a long time, actually, because of what's been going on. Mm -hmm. So we did it initially for the first couple of years, and then they just came and stayed with us, and we had workaway people, and Jodie and Joss, and um, (laughs) they just stayed with us, and we fed them, and they did a certain amount of hours, and that's how it works. So they get free, well, it's not free, is it? Like, they're working for it, but food and accommodation and yeah, so you're trading, you're trading with them. And so we had mm-hmm. people from all around the world, all around the world. And it's called the Workaway Program that we used and called Woofers, basically. Mm-hmm. So giving back to the land. Yeah, yeah. And they just stay and eat and kind of be part of your family and then have a certain amount of hours, like four hours or five hours a day to do the work. And that was hugely helpful. I remember we had eight people here at one stage and it's kind of fun. It's fun for them too, you know unless it gets to winter and then it's not. And then we didn't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of do that for a couple of years because that's quite a lot of work, having lots of people here as well. It, it is, and then that we in itself is work. Yeah. And then we get just different contractors to come and do stuff, or I do a lot of it myself. So you bought the place in 2017. How mm-hmm. long did it take you to get up and running then? Because you talked about those sort of startup aspects. About 18 months. Yeah. So who would you say have been your biggest supporters in this journey, helping you keep it together? My friends. Yeah. My absolute friends. Right throughout my life, I have been incredibly grateful for the strong friendships that I have and my family. I'm pretty privileged in the people that surround me and believe in (laughs) the craziness of what I'm doing. And also sometimes they're like, I don't know what you're doing, but that's all good. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I've got a lot of very strong, beautiful wahine or women around me, all different types of people that just, I don't know, allow me to be me. So, yeah, it's my family, my mum and dad and my brother and my, my boys, great supporters in their own hilarious ways. And my friends, really good friends, yeah. What would you say to people who are thinking about doing something like this for their communities? Think about your why. Why are you doing it? And when you're doing something around nature education, it's definitely not about ego. So you need to think why, and then you need to just do it. So for me, it's you know, for all the research and studies that I've done is that how do you remove those barriers and how do you make it happen? And your who, the people that you surround yourself, you cannot do this on your own. You need a community to come in and out or whatever. You don't need them all the time, but you work out who are your best supporters. You know, as Brene Brown would say, who's in the arena with you? And you have to really know who to take advice from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got advice. That was, 
Yeah. Everyone's got an opinion, mate. Everyone's got an opinion. Oh, yes. And you have to be really thing I've been working on for years now, in the last 10 years particularly, is how to make myself uh, resilient and able to keep doing this because I'm committed to what I'm doing. It's it's not a flash in the pan. You, you know, we brought land, we did this whole thing. You don't need to buy land to do this either. You work out what works for you, but just do it because you're going to learn so much along the way. I've just learning unbelievable amounts every single day. Yeah. So my best advice is know why you're doing it. Just start doing it and get people who are in your team to surround you and really, really reflect on why you've got other people that you're listening to that aren't giving you the advice that you need and be informed, work things out, make sure you've, you know, you've got enough money, make sure you've got all the things that you need to bring it forward because when you do, you're going to have impact. Anything like this is, I would want anyone to do anywhere, but just talk to people, research and get it underway. Don't spend all your time in the research and development phase. Just start doing it because you'll learn along the way. Beautiful. That's absolutely gold. I hope everybody appreciates that. <laughs> the voice of experience. <laughs> yes, lots of experience. Yeah. Lots of falling on the ass. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Lots of fails, lots of fails. But that's how, that's and not being we... afraid of that, eh? Exactly. Not being afraid I of think, failure Yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah, you've got to go into it ready, or you've got to, not even ready. You've got to go into it knowing that you're going to face these difficulties, and to know how to not take every single thing personally. It's resilience, yes. isn't it? It's emotional resilience, hugely. You know, but actually, one of the other things that's been a huge support to me, and that I would say to anyone, is that I laugh a lot <laughs> and I smile a lot. And that really helps. Like I naturally just laugh a lot because um, sometimes I'm in these situations where I'm like, what, what is this? What is going on now? Or like, I, or something's happened. I'm like, oh, you've got, you know, and so I find myself, even when I'm thinking about it, I'm smiling, you know, like I'm thinking of these situations now. And so I'm yeah. smiling and I'm laughing. And I just think it helps so much just to keep oh, it going. Just give yeah. yourself a little bit of a laugh at that long way. If you can kind of have a little like, oh, okay, and then solve it. You know, like don't use laughter as your shield, but mm -hmm. use it at the sort of like just kind of go, oh my God, okay, yeah, okay, right. And then have a bit of a laugh about it and then move on and work it out. That's all you can do is, is find a solution and work it out. And if you can't find a solution, then let it go. Very good advice. Because it will happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, more laughter. <laughs> believe, more believe laughter, people. More laughter. Now, you have been really interrupted by COVID and a huge impact, and everybody feels this globally. But because of the approach that your government is taking, it's it's going to be a longer stretch for you in terms of business resilience, I suspect. Before this, had you got to a place where you were able to make a living from it? I know it's not your driving force and I hear that, but obviously mm. for this project to continue, yeah. you must be able to sustain your living. So how has that yeah. been? We've always broken even. It's not profitable. It's set up as a social enterprise. And so any of the money that we're getting is being pumped back in. And, you know, within the first five years, we've only been well, what, three and a half of that actually going. I mean, I would expect to be exactly where we were, a yeah. small profit. But mm -hmm. no, you know, breaking even. And, it's, and that's that's what it needed to do. But that's also why you need to think of other revenues. Because if this yeah. does work in that model of a social enterprise, and as it should, 
that's totally fine. But I then have to be creative and pivot and be agile and make something else up. And that's what you can do as a creative. So yeah, we break even, but we're not making much money out of it at all. And that's okay because that's actually what I realized. That's how it should sit. So because of that, we then set up a charitable trust and we got the Oscar accreditation and what I said from the government, the Ministry of Social Development, to be able to help us with that, but also to be able to help children for that accessibility and being more equitable as well so they could get scholarships. And so we did our first event this year. So that was another COVID thing that happened last year is that we created a charitable trust. So that took a year. And then this year we had our first event. So we managed to do an event, which was fabulous because we've had a lot of time when you guys have been in lockdown or different situations as well, where we've been quite free here at the Mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been pretty lucky, really. Mm -hmm. And that was really cool because when we did that, we raised nearly $20,000. And that means that we can put in our food for us and people can apply for scholarships through the trust. It's completely separate to me. It's run by our chair, James but it just meant that we had our first kind of like, oh, yay, you know, and we can go for grants and we can do those sorts of things because we have a charitable trust beside us at the same time. So we have to look at revenue differently. You know, Mm -hmm. we have to look at funding and grants and we have to look at having that that charitable trust and then looking at, that's what this nature classroom is, is looking about how we can do this, have more impact, but then also I'm very honest about needing to have a revenue now as well because that's Mm -hmm. the stage I've got to after this length of development that that's essential. And what's driven the most revenue in terms of the different services that you offer, do you think? Which program is is your most successful? Holiday programs. Holiday, Holiday. yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you've told us about where you're heading because usually I'd head into that. How do you see yourself getting through the next few months then in terms of that unpredictability in terms of lockdowns and so I mean I said you because of the approach your government's taking I think the approach your government is taking has been very successful in terms of getting cases down and I know a lot of people here are sitting thinking I'm ready to move to New Zealand yeah yeah (laughs) absolutely absolutely they're doing the best they can yeah yeah those next few months are going to be important aren't they and especially when you say about coming back and you're not going to have that initial revenue because you've already had it in that sense. Yeah. So how is this going to go, do you think? I don't know, Hannah. I don't know. I'm just going to take every single day as it comes and work really hard on my business model for Talking Tree Hill coming out of it and working hard with Nature to Classroom and I just have to play. (laughs) So I have to be able to look at where I am now and then work out where I'm going to be. And it's really hard to say at this point because we're only in coming into lockdown the third week of it. So right. at the moment, you know, remember the government is subsidising us as well and they're very quickly to put that sort of resurgent payment through, which mm-hmm. we're, you know, I'm grateful to be having. But I'm just going to have to see. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's something that I can't answer right now, to be honest. I just... You know, I've got all the wheels in motion to see how I can possibly get this going, but it's going to be, it's going to be a wee bit scarce. Yeah. (laughs) And finally, just to finish, do you see the same pattern that we're seeing in terms of the people we're speaking to in the US and Canada and throughout the UK? Are you seeing a similar pattern in the sense of an increase in interest in your nature-based program right now? And do you think this is driven by what's happening with the pandemic 
Or is this some kind of paradigm shift that is caused by that? Or is it something that has been rumbling along and just needed that push? Yeah, I think it definitely is. And I think the other thing to add with that is the climate change report that's just come out as well, is that if we want to be able to look after Papatuanuku, then we need uh, people to do that. And that's the kids. So I think that that's definitely come about. And the thing I'm interested in is not having it sitting outside the curriculum, but actually embedding it in the curriculum, not just in a one-day school, but actually mm. part of the experience of going to school is this nature education focus. And, and you know, that's just science. It's the living world. It's all of those kind of things. But actually that learning being outside more. So I totally, totally think that the momentum is building on this and that we need a lot more people surrounding it so that we can do that and a lot more understanding of how you can teach in this way quite effectively, quite easily with the same kind of core competencies that are in a curriculum, but you do it outside and you just do it in a different way so that teachers are feeling confident that they're ticking all those boxes of what they need to do, but actually for the holistic development of the children and the teachers, just take them outside to do it and do things in a different way. So, yeah, no, I'm seeing it. I'm Well, I'm wanting to see it as well, Hannah. <laughs> so yeah. whether or not my stats are the right stats is a whole different story, but from what I'm seeing and looking at it, definitely, definitely, because as I said, it's the differentiator and nature is the one that is a free tool that we can walk in, that we can breathe in, that we can relax in, that we can be calm in, and it doesn't cost us anything. You just have to get out the door and get moving. So, yeah, I think it's definitely, definitely <laughs> happening. <laughs> From sheer will through the screen. <laughs> I fully agree. I think it is happening. Kirsten, thank you so much for speaking that's with us good. today. I, I think a, that's a, I get a buzz. Yeah, <laughs> it's a wonderful place to finish. And again, it's, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. It's an absolutely fascinating one, and I'm excited for the future because not only do we have that uptick in interest in terms of nature-based programs and services that are working with children and communities. But you are also hugely passionate and I can see that drive yeah. is going to take you to the next bit. <laughs> Whatever happens, you, you will get there because I can see you will make it happen no matter what. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will. <laughs> I With a lot sure of that... other people on board. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that's how you get there and that's what makes it even more special, isn't it? So I cannot wait to hear in three, five years' time where you're at and hopefully we'll get to catch up and, and further develop that story. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, no worries at all. And thank you very, very much. You sound a very passionate, wonderful person yourself and we don't have to leave it three to five years. You can always give me a call along the way or anything that you need from Aotearoa. We can send our vibes your way. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks, Anna. 